It's April 13th, 2009, and this is The Candid Frame. Welcome to another episode of The Candid Frame. Today's guest is master photographer Greg Gorman. And Greg, for the last several decades, has created a name for himself as one of the premier portrait photographers of today's age. He's known for many of his celebrity portraits, which have included Kim Bassinger, Kevin Costner, Sylvester Stallone, Raquel Welch, Mickey Rourke, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Elton John, and many, many more. He's also been renowned for his images and their use in posters for movies such as Dances with Wolves, Terminator 2, Field of Dreams, and Moonstruck, The Big Chill, and The Last Mohicans. He is um, a fantastic photographer, and if you're not familiar with his work, I, I suggest you go and take a look at his website, where you'll see some of his many legendary images. His his work is, is phenomenal, particularly his use of black and white and the way he uses lighting to unique effect. He was a great person to speak with. Uh, he's been on my on my radar for quite some time, and I was so pleased to have the opportunity to visit him at his studio. And um, I think you're really going to enjoy our conversation. So sit back and enjoy our conversation with Greg Gorman. Well, Greg, welcome to The Candid Frame. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Well, I appreciate your interest, and I'm looking forward to talking with you. I've been a great fan of your work for a very, very long time. But I want to start from your beginnings, and I know that, that your career started as a result of some images that you took of a concert of, of Jimi Hendrix. And I want to go back to that, but specifically, I want to sort of understand what role music played in your development as, as a photographer. Well, ironically, like you mentioned, the very first time I picked up a camera, I borrowed a friend's camera in 1968. I'm from Kansas City. And knowing nothing whatsoever about photography, I asked him basically, how do I set the camera? What, do I, what should I shoot at? And at that point in time, there, were, there weren't autofocus cameras. There weren't auto exposure. And he said, well, shoot Tri-X film, set it at about 5.6 at 400 at about a 60th of a second, and you should get an image. And uh, I shot two rolls of film. <clears throat> And the next day, was in, went over to his house, and we processed the film in his basement-turned-darkroom. And when I saw the pictures actually coming up in the tray when I made my first print, I was hooked. And uh, when I saw that image just mis- mysteriously appear in the developer, I immediately enrolled in a photojournalism class at the University of Kansas. And that's, that's where it started. <clears throat> and how that plays into music or music, let's say, played into photography. <clears throat> my parents got divorced when I was pretty young. My dad moved to California. And I came out one summer and uh, bought a camera and went to rock concerts every day, every night. I went to hear music. And, you know, being from a boy from Kansas, having the opportunity to go to these big music festivals and... Is this dog thing? No, it's Bob, fine. Okay. No worries. <clears throat> being able to go see three days of a rock festival at the Newport, Devonshire Downs, pop festivals and stuff, gave me the opportunity to take pictures. And, and that's really what inspired me. And, and it did start with music and... Uh, some of my earliest jobs were actually shooting early album covers. My, I think my, I did some early work with the Birds back in the, in that period, and I also did um, 
quite a bit of work with uh, Leon and Mary Russell. I shot an album cover for Leon and Mary Russell. That was my actual first full-blown album cover, my first billboard on Sunset. And how did that, how did that all happen? How did you go from being sort of uh, amateur out there making pictures at these concerts you were going to anyway to saying, oh, let me see if I can actually make a go of this? Well, I, um, I finished, uh, I went two years to school at the University of Kansas studying photojournalism, and then I actually transferred and I finished my degree in, in film at USC, getting an MFA in cinematography. But being a control freak, I kind of, I did a little bit of film work, did a little, some documentaries and commercials, but <clears throat> I felt I didn't have enough control. Sometimes I'd go more for an acting take over a camera take, and so I, I like the one-on-one relationship with people. And slowly but surely, I, I'm, I had a, I've started out funny. I mean, I never assisted anyone. Um, I always thought celebrities did their own hair and makeup, <clears throat> wore their own clothes. You know, it was a, I was a late bloomer to the real world of reality of what was going on. And um, but early on, I, I shot for some theater arts magazines. They contacted me, having seen headshots. I used, to, I started out, believe it or not doing headshots for $35 a day. And that included <laughs> film and processing. Oh, my God. I was buying tracks and 100-foot rolls and bulk loading the film in my uh, single apartment, which was my kitchen turned dark room. And I was making a killing. I thought this was great. I was out there. I was probably clearing $20 a day, and I thought that was pretty awesome doing what I wanted to do back then. <laughs> and 20 bucks a day when I was, you know, in 1970 wasn't so terrible. So um, Early on, I started doing. I actually did that in the late '60s. I started doing that, and uh, slowly but surely, it kind of snowballed. And through some of the people I shot, uh, I met some people that were a little bit more famous. And you know, it was kind of one of those daisy chain things that kind of happened. And I was very lucky. Huh. In when you started getting into sort of the business end, because you you primarily were going to be like a photojournalist and then getting into film. But part of being a photographer is discovering how to make a, a business viable. You know, there's a lot of emphasis on creating photographs. And today about, you know, learning Photoshop and color calibration and all that stuff. But the business end is, is really where, it, where it's at if you want to make a go and have a lifetime career. So where did you come to that knowledge um, if you weren't, you know, assisting and not having the benefit of someone else's experience? Um, I just started taking pictures. It was really door of hard knocks. It's like anything. I mean, I think that anything that a person wants to learn, and I'm sure you're aware of this, a lot of times and it's like... I'm all for schools, but I think like where you're teaching and what I'm doing with the workshops is more interesting than your traditional schools. I find that to get out in the real world and just do it and learn from your experiences and learn from your mistakes. I mean, I feel that I learned more, not in the classroom, but in seeing my contact sheets when they came back from the lab and looking at the contact sheets and going, knowing the exact moment on that contact sheet when I was thinking something that I didn't bring up to the person I was shooting mm-hmm. and I realized where I failed. And I, you know, I've never had a, what I would consider a 100% successful contact shoot. I can always find something <laughs> in everything I shoot that could have been handled better, could have been done better. And in most cases, ironically, uh, I thought about it at the time but didn't bring it to the forefront. I thought, oh, it's all going to flesh itself out. But uh, a lot of times I learned the most valuable thing that you have to offer your, your subjects is your opinion. Yeah. And... Uh, by offering your opinion, the first thing I think you have to really do is win their trust and confidence because you have to be able to convince them that you're right and that you you build a, a trusting relationship between the two people. And that's really kind of how it all started with me. I mean, I started working for theater arts magazines and got pictures published, and then through some of the pictures that were published, I'd meet other people, and slowly that just kind of snowballed. You're known primarily for your black and white work, but I know for a, for a time you were shooting a good amount of, of color. 
what was what was the awareness that came to you that black and white really served your vision um, as a photographer as opposed to, to color? What was what was the quality, or what were, or what was the sort of the impetus that said this is the way I need to go? I would say that uh, what brought all that to the forefront was actually a magazine that really helped launch my career and that was in the early days was interview magazine andy warhol's interview magazine and i did a lot of covers for them in the um in the 80s and 90s early 90s and um those covers and those spreads which were always black and white really started my interest and uh since it wasn't color and i liked the pictures and i liked the relationship of the light and not and stripping everything bare from color seeing everything in black and white, to me it just seemed much more real and much more honest. And at the same time that I started doing a lot of work with um, Interview, I started a campaign for LAI Works, which I shot about a couple hundred ads for them. And doing those starkly lit, strong highlights, harsh shadows, very little mid-tone range, um, I just became hooked. And I liked the relationship of, of that kind of light. Um, and I think how it developed, really was that in the beginning, and, and of course a lot of my commercial work is still is, is color, but um, I think probably I'm more known for black and white. But I think in the early days um, when I was shooting, I used to put all my pictures up in my apartment in Laurel Canyon, and one day I looked at all the pictures of all the movie stars that I'd shot, and this is probably in the mid-70s, uh, mid to late 70s. Mm -hmm. I looked at them and they all looked like interchangeable postage stamps. The lights were always put over the camera. Everything was kind of flatly lit. And I looked at the pictures and the people looked good, but there was no real distinction between one image and the next other than that it was a nice picture of whoever it was that I photographed. Mm -hmm. I didn't feel that there was any, any style, any character, any depth. I felt the pictures just kind of showed everything. They didn't leave anything to the imagination. And it wasn't really until I started moving the light off of the center point of the camera and, yeah. and off to the side where maybe my pictures didn't necessarily answer all the questions but left something to be desired that the pictures for me became more successful. And I suppose like any artist, it's, a, it's at that point in time of reckoning where one develops their own style. And the style comes out of experimenting trial and error, seeing what you like, what, what's working, what doesn't work. And it's also from looking at other photographers' work whose work you emulate and you enjoy and uh, seeing how they work yeah. and, um, and then seeing how that fits into the program of how you think and how you, how you visualize things. Because we all see things slightly differently. We all see color differently. We all see how we want to interpret somebody. And that, that interpretation is a lot of times built on your life experiences. It's built on your relationship with the person at the time that you're photographing them. It's built upon the job or the assignment for what the ultimate result of that picture may be. Yeah. There's so many factors that go into the decision-making process on how, you, how a photographer will interpret their own vision as it relates to what the project may be. Mm. You know, what's interesting about, about your work for me is that a lot of people, when they think about black and white, they think about having a real wide tonal range. You know, having, you know, good solid mid-tones, detail in the highlights, detail in the shadows. But for a lot of your work, particularly portrait work, you know, you, you, you don't mind letting go of some of those, those shadows and letting yeah. them go really to, to black. And did that process, that understanding of, of making that kind of choice come out uh, as a result of the printing of the work? Is that when you started thinking about pushing it to that extent, or were you sort of uh, preconceiving it along those lines even when you were making the photograph? Well, I've always joked, and in some of my lectures and stuff, I always talk that I never was in search of that Kodak moment. You know, I was never looking for the perfect zone system. I was never looking for that perfect 
ratio between my highlights and shadows that I had, you know, a lot of detail in my shadows. I think when I first recognized it was when I decided, when I'd asked myself, what do I want this picture to say and how much information do I really need to supply to the viewer of this image? And I think... And it's one of the things that I, I work on teaching in my workshops. Is, uh, what do you want this picture to say? And you may see a certain vision in that picture. But at the same time that you see that vision and you're here and now taking the image, you have to understand that the viewer of that image may see something different. And it's your responsibility in terms of creating imagery to channel your viewer into your image. Mm -hmm. You need to take pick anything in the frame that doesn't really contribute to what you're trying to say that could be extemporaneous information or too much information. That's probably why I started going, I don't need all the detail in the shadows. Is there anything in the shadow that I really care about? Not really. What do I care about? I care about the eyes. I mean, you know, for me, yeah. it's always the eyes are like the windows to the solids. And most of my work is connected through the eyes and, and the head angle and the, where the, bo the body language being very positive just simple movements that can make or break a photograph. And so I try to, in a lot of my work, to channel the work to the point that when somebody looks at it, they're seeing what I want them to see. Yeah. You know, what's, what's amazing about your photographs, because for the most part, a lot of your portraits are very simple. It's either a white, a black, or a gray background. And I was looking at those images, and I realized that beyond being interesting pictures of, of, of people, they are really fantastic explorations of line, and shape and tone that's you know extremely shaped by, by by your use of light but if you just stop looking at them as pictures of people as just graphic you know elements on, on on the page i thought that they were very amazing and i was wondering how conscious are you of those lines and shapes when you're shooting are you making sort of an intentional use of them or is it at this point sort of an intuitive thing where you're having a, a gut feeling that this is working? Uh, I'm extremely conscious of uh, shape, form, line, composition. It's a huge part of my work. My, my work is very simple. I mean, I don't think I have a lot of tricks up my sleeve. I don't think that my style has changed a lot over the years. Um, and maybe to my detriment, I mean, I've kind of stayed true to my form as, as you see the face of photography and the styles that are hip and trendy today changing. And I think it's hurt me in terms of getting a lot of work. I think I don't work nearly as much as I did in the days when the style of the photography that I, I do and I've worked with um, was more popular. I mean, today the style seems to be much looser, more editorial. For, for me personally, it's not as interesting. It doesn't hold as much interest for me, that the lifestyle photography. It's just there's nothing there that really intrigues me too much. But because of the fact and, and you're absolutely right I mean I, I do shoot primarily black, white or gray backgrounds I'm not a big fan of color I usually dress the people I'm photographing in black uh, without a lot of patterns and a lot of, of fuss and I do because of the minimal minimalistic qualities in my imagery um, to avoid and because I'm also I mean you know it's, it's almost funny to say I'm a headshot photographer but I do shoot so much stuff in so very tight that shape, form, line and composition is key to my images. Mm -hmm. I mean, how I will crop a picture, how I will balance the picture. I would say probably 60 to 65% is done in the capture, and the other 35% is done on how I ultimately crop the picture. Um, ironically, you know, now shooting, you know, primarily 35mm uh, format, I shoot with the Mark III, EOS 1DS Mark III, and with the 5D Mark II, which I really love. Um, I find that, you know, my frames are shot pretty tight, you know. There's not a lot of cropping that I need to do, but if I do, I will go in and crop to get the graphic to where I want it to be.
when I've seen other people make attempts at doing that very sort of simple background, you know, oftentimes when you look at the, the, the body of work, there's a sort of sameness to the images because the setup is pretty much the same. And what I, I, I see, particularly with, with students, is the fact that they're not able to evoke something from their subject, you know, that, 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 that captures something unique about that person and their personality. And I think that a, a lot of the work now that people sort of see is very conceptual. So they're putting people in elaborate costumes and a setup, and, and they're allowing those things to sort of express an aspect of that person's person, personality. When you're working with just the backdrop and the subject, it's, I think, even more difficult to do it. So how do you sort of achieve something distinctive uh, out of a person, whether it's they're a celebrity or just an average person? Well, I think um, one of the things that I do, um, and I've always done from the beginning of my career, actually, um, as a uh, studio of portrait photographers I've, I usually break bread with the talent I always have had a chef that's always cooked I've always spent time if I don't know the people I'm shooting I usually spend time with them in the um, makeup room while they're getting made up looking at them I'll analyze their face while I'm talking to them look at both sides of their face figure out what it looks like to me the angles are I mean I think one of the interesting things in terms of the LAI Works campaign was the fact that the copy line Every face is like a work of art. It deserves a great frame. It's very much true in terms of how you capture somebody. No two faces are alike, and no two faces deserve the same treatment. And based upon how I perceive people, and I've always been of the of the school that I, I want to make people look good. Uh, I want them to look like themselves, but I, I, I'm not out to get you know a revealing picture that's not kind because I feel it's their time as much as mine. So I'm looking for angles where I can enhance what I see in the person or, or the beauty that I see in that person. That beauty may be a ravaged face, and that may be the beauty that I see in the picture. There's times when I've shot you know, John Hurt, whose face is very lined, and, and I, like that. I like seeing all that character, and I like seeing the lines and, the, and the, everything that's going on. But I basically try to, uh, in terms of kind of rambling, but I, 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 in terms of getting what I want out of a person, I try to spend as much time with them previous, prior to the shoot, so to speak, uh, getting them to feel comfortable, confident, winning their trust and confidence. I share my images with them when we're shooting. I always show them, used to show them the Polaroids in the old days, now mm-hmm. uh, with the digital captures. I always show them the pictures. I don't understand how photographers shoot stuff and don't share it with the people they're shooting because I think if you can get the communication lines flowing between subject and photographer and there can be an understanding of where the photographer is going, the subject can then open up and perhaps offer more. And... Sure, there are people I shoot, you know, I've, I've shot people like Kim Basinger and, and other, they don't want to see anything, you know. Mm-hmm. So, you know, sometimes if people don't want to see it, you know, I, I, won't, I won't share it with them. But generally, I like, to, uh, I like to involve the talent as much as possible. And I find that way they're often more eager to work with you, and, and this way sometimes I think you can get better pictures. And there'll be times where I'll get, like in the old days with a Polaroid or even with a digital capture, I'll be very close to what I want. And then I'll try to keep them in the same vein, and I'll just work that one angle, that mm-hmm. one shot. Many times I'll have a vision going into a shoot what it is I want but the majority of the times I would say uh, I have a preconceived idea of what I'm looking for but I leave myself very open to the spontaneous moment and sometimes what I have preconceived as an idea for a shot will evolve into something totally different or I will shoot something and I'll say this is interesting but I see where I could make this more interesting or better and then I'll go in that direction well you shoot in a variety of different ways you shoot a lot with available light you have a little sort of scrim system I have a new yeah. cage that we just uh, built, which is pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. I, um, 
I've worked with California Sundowns for a long time, and at my old studio down on Beverly, um, I actually we designed this. It's a it's a cage. It's a it's a lighting solution, but it's basically a three wall cage that basically is a frame, eight by eight by eight. Or it could be whatever. This mm-hmm. is an eight by eight by eight, and you have you can have blacks on one side or a silk on one side, silk at the top. You can basically have yeah. the light wherever you want. And, What's incredible is that, you know, when I decide if I want to key somebody from the left or I'll key them from the right, then I can have the silk on that side wherever the sun is coming in, angle the cage so the sun is coming in at that light, at that angle, and then basically light the person. This is why in in my workshops when I'm teaching, I really spend a lot of time. People don't understand that a black reflector is every bit as important as a silver reflector or a white reflector. I mean, I use black reflectors as much as I do mm. anything just to basically subtract light. So I basically have a key light coming in through a silk on one side or the other. The person's bald like me, there's black on the top. Yeah. And then I basically will just use a soft fill in front to bounce in a little bit of fill light. So I'll have maybe a strong key coming in from this side if the silk's over here. And then if I need to just open up this side of your face... And with, with, like your skin, I would do moderate light. With my skin, I'd use, use a lot less light. And someone darker than you would get more light. You know, mm-hmm. it would depend right. on, on the tonality of the person's complexion and their skin tones. But that's how I try to light. I kind of shape and mold and form light on everything I shoot. You were talking before we interview about teaching your students how to see, see the light. Um, what, do you, what do you mean by that? <coughs> it's amazing today, you know. You're a lot younger than I am. But, I mean, I know when I started, you know, Everything was done traditionally, and I'm so grateful that that's how I learned. I'm so grateful I learned, you know, doing traditional photography. Today, everybody's got everybody can be a photographer. Everybody can put their camera on automatic or program, or they can put it on shutter speed priority or aperture priority. Normally, they don't even know what that is. They have it on program and yeah. they shoot, and they all think they can take a picture. The first thing they learn when they come to the door of my studio is cameras are put on manual. You're going to take a light reading. You're going to understand what the relationship between your highlights and your shadows are. You're going to understand if you have enough of a dynamic range to capture what it is you're looking for, even though digital sees light and low luminance better than film ever did on its, on its best day. I want people to really understand that. I want them to understand what, how bright is that light behind your subject. Do you understand that that's going to blow out? Do you understand that it may flare the person? Or is it going to be too dark that it's not going to read? So everybody has to take light readings. Everybody has to understand that. And once they start to understand light and the relationship of how it plays, I mean, people really don't see it. I mean, they come in and they just see, be like, you know, I could just shoot you the way you are now, but like, you've got actually great light on you. But if I was going to shoot you from this angle, I'd put a black card up here to even accentuate, to make this even darker, even though this is going into shadow. I'd take more of that light away. So I would mold. I would look at your face, and I would mold the light around how I would see shooting it. And your and with your head shaved bald, um, I would put a black up here and take the emphasis off the top of your forehead. This is probably going to be hard in a, a podcast, but what's interesting and what I look at is like when I'm shooting somebody. The important part of my face, for example, being bald, is that this is my. This is what's interesting, I think, in a person's face. This mm-hmm. is not interesting, and to allow a lot of light, say, to hit the forehead takes the viewer again, which is what we talked about earlier, away. So your eye starts to drift upward onto the top part of the head where there's no real information. Yeah. The information's here, you know? When I shot stuff of RuPaul one time, when uh, he was up here and he was out of drag and he actually had eyebrows and he looked so, he's such a handsome guy and really great face. When we shot, I put a big black flag up here just to knock the light off. I'm not trying to make it look like he has hair, but I'm trying to take the emphasis off the part of the picture that's not important. And I don't mean not important because he's bald and we're trying to hide something. I'm saying let's, like you were asking me earlier, let's channel the light into the part of the picture that makes sense. What do I want to say and where do I want somebody to look? Do I want somebody to just zip up off of here? No. I want to come into the eyes. I want to get it into my subject. And so that's what we do kind of with the cage. And 
And you make a great, a great point about this whole idea about really examining someone and thinking about what is it about them that I find most interesting and how can I use the camera, my choice of lens, the light or the lack of light in order to have people go, oh, that's what he wants me to, to look at. You know, and that's and that's fantastic. I think people don't realize it. I mean, you know how important the camera angle is, the angle of a person's face. And if I have somebody sometimes for the first time in in the studio down here to do a, a, a sitting, I will put, have the key light on the left side, and I'll shoot them into the light and away from the light. I always start a session in very close, because regardless of where the session is going to go, if I can understand the face and the angles that are working and the angles that aren't working and what lights work and what light is not working, then when, once I pull the camera back. It, the rest is a walk in the park. Mm-hmm. So I generally will sometimes start with the light, key light on the left, having the person turn into the light and away from the light to see if they look better turned into the light or away. Then I'll take the light to the right-hand side and do exactly the same thing. And I'll look and I'll see, and I'll see which angles are better and how where I want to be with the camera. I'll see which eye is maybe smaller that maybe needs to be closer to the camera. I'll mm-hmm. see if one side... If the nose bends a little way, I'll shoot into the bend to straighten the nose. You know, all these are elements that go into... Um, kind of figuring this out and one of the things that a lot of people don't even work with with a key light is that I always have a low reflector that kind of bounces up underneath whatever the key light if I have a key light up here then I always have a, a flex fill arm that comes out here that'll bounce a little kick into the eyes avoiding lighting under the chin so I think you know people don't realize that you know I light very simply but yet if you look at the set it, I may be lighting with one point light source but I may be having all kinds of light modifiers in there whether they're whites they're blacks they're silks they're uh, silvers to basically uh, help shape that light around the main point light source. Well, in, in with your portraits, you emphasize like the eyes, but with your nudes, which are which are amazing, what are you exploring there? I mean, what are you trying to call attention to with with the many um, with, with the many nudes that you do? Well, the nudes are just a wider exploration of the portrait in many ways because basically with nudes, um, I mean, I shot for so many years in really close just doing portraits and it was me giving myself an assignment said, Greg, you've shot this, you've done this, do something different. So that was taking the clothes off the people, backing up, getting fuller shots. And I'm just dealing with the same elements but just on a wider scale, which is basically what we just spoke about. Shape, form, composition, line, sculpture. Um, I'll use a higher key light. I'm looking, I use more cross light sometimes. Not so dis- different than the portraits, because I like pretty, you know, I take a key pretty far off the front of the camera. Lighting nudes straight over the camera, you have no definition, no shape. And so I look for more of those sculptural elements. I've never liked shooting big muscular guys or, or, or big gals. I've always liked shooting very lean, sinewy people. I love dancers, because they, mm-hmm. I love the way they can move and the poses they can hold. So all those things are, you know, to me, very important. And so... You know, like I'll show you later. I have a down the studio where I did a lot of my early nudes of Bridget Nielsen and Tony Ward and whatnot. A, a daylight wall where the sun only comes only part of the year for two hours during the day, where the sun is very high key and it comes across in a straight line and it slowly moves up the wall. And as it moves up the wall, you get this very hard cut light that uh-huh. is great for nudes. In in terms of working with people, um, you mentioned like at your workshop, people are very uncomfortable with working with. With, with nude subjects because they don't know what to do with them. Um, I think regardless of whether you're very comfortable with your body or not, it's still very awkward to sort of expose yourself and be vulnerable in that. How do you, how do you work with the subject in terms of 
not only putting them at ease, mm -hmm. but getting them to a place where their where their muscles, their entire body is relaxed enough that you can get that nice graphic element where the with the where the hands, the arms, the legs, the arch of the back is sort of flowing into sort of a beautiful beautiful um, sort of beautiful flow because posing someone you can't get that. No, they become stiff and, and they lock yeah. up. Absolutely. So how do you how do you get that? Well, some of it, it's. I mean, I can take credit for a lot of it, but I can't take credit for all of it because I must give the subjects a lot of credit too. I mean, Tony Ward was one of the very first people that I shot, and I, you know who you know Tony Ward. Tony Ward is a very, uh, very was a very famous model and did a lot of work with uh, Bruce Weber and Herb and myself uh, over the years, and he just had a great fluidity to himself and came in and was able to move and. And, and, and that's one of the reasons dancers are great. But generally, um, people that will agree to do nudes, sometimes they come in, they're uncomfortable for maybe the first 10 minutes. And once the clothes are off and it's all hanging out, so to speak, and everybody's seen it, they, they tend to relax. It's, it's just the beginning of the session. To, you know, people can be a little more insecure, a little more uncomfortable. Once the clothes are off, they don't usually end up going back to putting their robes on. They walk around the studio naked. They're comfortable. And that's important. Um, I think it's that you have to be comfortable as a photographer. If you come into the situation with a model and you're nervous, you're uptight, or you're afraid to say, you know, for example, hide your balls, um, I can see them kind of between your legs. I'm very direct. I just say, you know, hide this. I either want to see it or I don't want to see it. I want to see it all or I don't want to see any of it because yeah. it's going to detract from my picture. Same with the hands. You know, if I'm, I'm seeing a finger, I watch it. I don't want to have a finger, a hand look arthritic or a finger look like it's amputated. So um, I'm just real direct. I mean, I'm a very open person, and, I, and that's how I deal with my models. So it's, it's very cut and dry. And people say, oh, do you get aroused during your shoots? Is, do you, when you're shooting beautiful women or beautiful men, does this turn you on? Never. Mm. Never turns me on. I'm turned on for the moment in the shoot that I get to photograph somebody, and the actual capture of the picture is exciting to me. Am I aroused during the shoots? Never, because I'm thinking about way too many things, and my focus is on... On, on the graphic elements within the frame. And so I'm, I'm very concerned about how the, the interplay of the light. And it's, it's, it's very difficult when you're doing it. They're not as easy as people think. And you really have to watch, especially shooting in natural light, where your highlights and your shadows are falling. It's critical. One highlight hitting the wrong part of the body can destroy a nude. And um, that, that's one of the challenges, I think, that you have to deal with in terms of, of doing figurative studies. And... You shoot at different times of day. Sometimes, like with portraits, I love to do portraits late afternoon light or early morning light. With um, nudes, I, I'm quite happy shooting high-key midday sun you know, if I want a really sculptural nude. Then you have to figure out what to do with the face and where the angles go. So it all presents challenges, but they're all solvable. Yeah. How are you challenging yourself as of late? As of late? Yeah. Uh, making wine up in the wine country. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about That's that. my challenge. Yeah, yeah I'm up... Uh, uh, you know, I, I've done the celebrity thing for 40 years, and it still is what pays the bills, but it doesn't really hold my interest so much anymore. I still love photographing people, but the whole celebrity game is kind of like, for me, I feel like I've kind of been there, done that, and uh, it's, it can get exhausting now anymore. And uh, it's not to say that I don't have amazing friends in the business that I adore, that I still hang out with and, and see, mm -hmm. but the day-to-day -day diatribe of trying to shoot uh, editorials for magazines on celebrities, it's become a game because... Uh, you know, 30 years ago, it was kind of fun. It was still fairly new. And not just new for me, but also, I think, new for them. And I think that <clears throat> once people realize the fact that celebrity, recognize celebrities as a commodity, they all became, too many people wanted to get into the uh, food chain. And, you know, dealing with a, with a talent today, you've, you've got sometimes their own hair and makeup people, so that may not even be the vision you want. 
their own stylists they'll only wear specific clothes because they're endorsed by Prada mm-hmm. or Gucci or, or whatever and it becomes the shoots become more like a catalog shoot you've got an agent you've got a manager and you've got the people from the movie company and you sign your life away and the pictures can be run one time in a magazine it's it just ceases to be interesting so since the mid seventies, I should say, um, I've I've been passionate about wine, and 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 everybody that knows me knows it's like you know kind of a big part of my life. And um, I guess in the old days when I was taking pictures all the time and, and doing that, um, I was kind of initially fascinated by a lot of the talent that I shot, and then the, the, then I went from the talent to the producers and directors I found more intriguing. And now I suppose the people that really turn me on today are the winemakers and the vintners. The field hands, mm-hmm. all the people. I mean, you know, the, the we owe so much to the. Uh, so a lot of people don't know this. Don't know about. We owe so much to, to the uh, to the migratory farm workers and to the Mexican Americans that basically are the people that are in charge of why we have great great wine uh, because they really the plants are like their family and they they understand every single vine and every and how it's all maturing and what what they need to do to make sure it's on yeah. track. So today, this is really my passion, and I, I spend quite a bit of time having a home in the country up in Mendocino where I do my workshops uh, uh, in Napa and Sonoma and up in Anderson Valley, and I made a little wine last year, and I'm, g- I'm just getting ready, actually, in a couple more weeks on my way up for my next workshop to go over to do my blend for my 07. So. Oh, great. So that's where I'm challenging myself, you know, and, I, and it's a learning process. I just did my first uh, vintage uh, in 2006, and I, I really had very little to do with it other than selecting the fruit and doing the blend. The, the grapes were uh, harvested and, and raised and taken care of by um, my dear friend Dave Finney from Orange Swift Cellars, who makes Prisoner. I don't know if you know the wine Prisoner. He does, uh-huh. Prisoner. He does some other great wines like Mercury Head and Papillon, which is how we met. I shot the label for his wine, Papillon. Oh, okay. Well, tell me about your, your workshop that you have in, in Mendocino. I think from everything I've seen and everything I've read, like you just said, it's as much about the photo- food and the wine and the photography and the rapport that people have with each other, you know, with, the, with, with you. Um, tell me about how that came to be and, and what you hoped it to be and, and what has it become now for you. Well, I've taught, I was mentioning to you earlier before we got started, I've been teaching for more than 30 years, and I, I taught quite a few years at Santa Fe, and I, I teach at Anderson Ranch and several other places, but um, I thought, why not have my own workshop? Uh, it was a selfish reason on one level, because I built a home in Northern California right on, on the ocean on a big bluff top over, with a 270-degree view of the ocean, and I built a studio up there as well. And I wanted to do my own workshops where... I could basically teach them the way I wanted to teach. I mean, teaching for other people in other environments, the workshops were different. and They were a little bit more generic, uh, and I wanted to keep my workshops very open. I wanted to have them very small so that the people that came and studied with me could leave really learning something. So the most people I'll take is nine, and I usually have a staff of at least four. I bring my own chef. I always bring in, and I was mentioning to you earlier, uh, a certified Adobe instructor so that the aspects of color management, Photoshop, uh, workflow are covered successfully. I bring in my own models, very high-end models that I bring in from Los Angeles, and I'm bringing one in this time from New York, one from Austin, Texas. And people can shoot portraits and nudes. And so I teach photography how I light, how I communicate, as we were mentioning earlier, how I see the light. And I break them up into small teams, and we shoot in the studio with strobe, tungsten, artificial lights, uh, with silks, natural light. I have a daylight studio up there, a big daylight studio. Mm-hmm. And then we go out in the field and shoot in vineyards and on black lava beaches and in 
40 foot sand dunes. So they're exposed to the elements. And the workshop basically is a complete workflow from capture to output. So it starts with the conception of pictures, working with people, yeah. shooting them, coming back, working with workflow, working with the pictures, color management, retouching a little bit, all of the elements. And it ends up in the form of fine art digital print. And we print on the large Epson printers up there. And so the, the students that come participate, in, and they actually see everything from beginning to end. And this is all coupled, as you mentioned, um, with my chef who prepares all the lunches and several of the dinners. I have a winemaker that comes in at the end of the week, different winemakers from all over Napa and Sonoma and presents their portfolio of wines. I have live music. So, I mean, I've always, people that know me and that are my friends know I've always kind of lived life to the fullest, and I enjoy the aesthetics of, of a great bottle of wine, a great meal, great music, the arts. And so that's all incorporated into the workshop mm-hmm. for, the, for the week. So it's a pretty hands-on week with Greg Gorman. I do four of them a year, four to five a year. What do you think is the, the greatest gift you've received as a result of being able to use the camera as far as your life? Being able to read people. I think right. that uh, spending my life in close, pretty much most of my work is in pretty close, and I think it gives me the opportunity of being able I can pretty much look at someone and clock them pretty quickly. And I think, you know, being able to get inside someone's head much more quickly than maybe some people can, being able to judge a good person, a person that's focused and, and there, it's, it's been a, a great treat. I think one of the most valuable things has been the wonderful friendships and the connections with incredible people that I've been able that have afforded me the opportunity to get to know so many amazing people through what I've done. Mm-hmm. Well, the last question I always ask is: I ask uh, a photographer to recommend another photographer that our listeners should go out and, and discover. So it can be anyone, um, but who would that be for you, and why? In terms of a young up and coming photographer, up and coming, or an established photographer, or just anyone who you may have been recently excited about his work. Um, I'll tell you whose work I really love, and I've spent so much time, you know, as a portrait photographer and a studio photographer in controlled situations. And, and we didn't discuss, it, but I've recently been doing a little bit more street photography and a little bit more oh, other other work. Uh, a person whose work I think is just extraordinary, and he's, he's an extraordinary person, a very very humble guy, whose work I think is just exceptional, it's Garrett Ludwig. I don't know if you know Garrett. No, I don't. Well, before we finish, I'll let you take a look. at This is one of Garrett's books. I saw Garrett last night. He's just an extraordinary photographer. Uh, for someone that wants that you want to talk about being able to see the light and utilize light and be able to create photographs that look like painting canvases. Uh, Garrett's work is just stunning. I, I recommend it highly to everybody. And his work is just fantastic. His work he's done in Russia is pretty stunning work. Yeah, I think he just uh, spoke at the Art Center last week. Oh, did he? Did you yeah, see him? I didn't have a chance oh, to. Oh, yeah. He's, he's, like he's quite wonderful. Yeah, you should... He, he's, he lives here, and when he's in town, he, he does speak, and he's really t- quite terrific. Right. Well, thank you so much. It's, it's been a real honor to have a chance to speak Well, thank you. you, and thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Thanks again for joining me for another episode. A special thank you to Susan Caballero, who uh, helped make this episode possible. And if you have any comments or suggestions, please email me at thecandidframe at gmail.com, post a message on the blog at thecandidframe.com, or post a message in the Candid Frame fan group at facebook.com. Till next time, this is Ivarian X Perello, and this is The Candid Frame. Check out this show and more great photography podcasts at photocastnetwork.com.
photocastnetwork.com.